we're all comfortable around Postgres. I don't think any of us are comfortable bringing Postgres from 11 to 15. So I think it's going to be a good excitement. Or, or maybe, maybe it was just smooth. We'll get there. All right. I just messed up your name really badly. Let me start over. <laughs> <laughs> Axel just, Mutkus, yes. I don't know what that was. Lexus Motko. What's up, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to Beam Radio. Welcome to Beam Radio. I'm Meryl Dakin, and I'm here with my hosts, Alex Kutmos. Howdy, howdy. And Lars Wiekman. Hello. And before we get started, I want to shout out our sponsors, one of whom is Underjord. I think that maybe that was close to the pronunciation. Yeah, yeah. Lars, do you want to tell us what's going on with that? Yeah, so at Underjord, well, new blog post in the Unpacking Elixir series is out. um, And I am currently um, still doing, still helping companies do some elixir recruitment it's a pretty pretty cold market out there i'll be honest uh but consulting is actually going going quite well so um if you're keen to get any help on elixir projects or generally otherwise relevant projects to people with elixir experience um feel free to reach out thank you and we don't have bruce here with us today but uh i do want to shout out grox.io or groxio as i sometimes (laughs) I don't really know how we say it, but yeah, they go for Groxio. They, Groxio, the great. Okay, because that's how I like do to Groxio, say it. So All right, so Groxio, um, he let me know that Groxio is working through the Tetris game with Elixir concepts uh, for comprehension and a mix of critical Elixir data structures as well. So check them out. Uh, now you know where to go. It's Grox.io, but it's called Groxio. And uh, Finally, I want to introduce our guest, my colleague and friend, uh, Brent Anderson. Hi, Brent. Hi. Welcome, Welcome to Beam Radio. Um, Brent and I are supposed to be on stand-up right now at Knock, where we both work, but instead we're here. So thank you for joining us and skipping school with me. Yeah, no, this is fun. Glad to, glad to be here. Um, Beam Radio is uh, one of several excellent podcasts in the Elixir ecosystem, and it's always fun to, uh, to get to listen to the show, and I'm glad to be on it. You will have a new experience, which is the weird one. Or maybe it's not new. I don't know how, how many podcasts you've been on. But my experience is that it's kind of terrible when you guest a podcast that you actually enjoy, because suddenly it's like you don't get an episode. You've already heard it. <laughs> like you, you might listen in just to hear like did i did i completely blow it but i've guessed at one of my uh, more preferred swedish development podcasts a few few times too many and it's like i'm missing a podcast every week i guess <laughs> yeah i'm, sure I'm sure to win yeah i'm I, i'm sure that there's a word in some language for the the feeling of hearing your own voice played back to you on a recording <laughs> and how unpleasant that might be um, but, yeah. uh, no, I'm, I am very happy to be here and, um, it's, uh, it's a real treat. So thank you. Pleasure to have well, you on. Yeah. Thank you, Brent. Um, so the way that we like to start with our guests is for them to tell us their Elixir story, which I've never heard from you. So I'm also curious, how did you get involved with Elixir and, uh, yeah, what brought you to the language and eco- ecosystem? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting story. Um, so I, uh, as Meryl mentioned, um, we both work at Knock, 
and we developed notifications infrastructure and kind of tracing back from that point um i uh i've always wanted to work professionally in elixir since i first heard about the language um i remember first seeing something about it on hacker news and um seeing how the syntax seemed I, i'd never worked in ruby before i'd mostly done uh, of all things javascript and typescript in like the node ecosystem more or less up to that point um and php actually uh, back in the day along with uh, mobile development in uh, objective c um that was kind of like a lot of my my more, more recent professional history um and so i saw the syntax for elixir and it was actually a little different to me um, which was funny because i know that erlang generally tends to be the one that people are like wow that the syntax looks a little uh, a little different to me um, because it's uh, of its prologue roots, and um, I uh, I remember thinking, wow, this is interesting that you have these different processes. I wonder what you could do with that. And then I kind of didn't think about it for a while. And in the meantime, there were side projects that I was working on at the time that were in the space essentially of uh, video games and simulations. And um, it struck me that the parallelism of the beam was an excellent candidate for being able to run massively concurrent systems, like that's what it's for. And all of a sudden I was hooked. I was like, wow, like I, I have an idea of how you could actually use this to do stuff. And so I followed the ecosystem. I you know, devoured books on it um, that were available at the time. This was probably five or six years ago. And I'd done some things on the side in it as well, developing a few backends for some side projects that I'd developed um, using Absinthe and Phoenix and you know the, the whole suite of tools that are available in the ecosystem. But I'd never really gotten to work on something in a professional context. And it was uh, a little over two years ago, um, right as Knock was just getting started, that I saw our CTO, Chris Bell, posted something on the Elixir forum about having a job openings at this new company working in messaging systems. And I'd uh, also have this uh, weird fascination with messaging systems and just the way that queuing systems can really power interesting outcomes for systems and, and products. And it seemed like a really great fit to get to go and work at a new startup working in Elixir on high performance messaging systems at NOC. Um, and so I signed up and started working and it's been that way ever since. But uh, yeah, prior to Knock, um, I've worked in a variety of industries, mostly at startups, um, in a variety of different languages and different contexts. But um, Elixir is uh, one of my favorite places to work and just the Beam ecosystem in general. Friendly community, great platform to build on, and just such a, a rich heritage that we've inherited from so many great, you know, minds and contributors over the over the decades that it's been around. So yeah. That is crazy that Knock was your first. Um like company that you worked at with Elixir. I had no idea actually. Um, yeah. I just thought nope. that you had always been an Elixir wizard. <laughs> nope. I, uh, my, my first um, like foray into it really was just on the side project side of things because I could never convince my uh, colleagues to, to try Elixir and to incorporate it. Um, I remember actually basically replicating, um, I apologize for probably mispronouncing his name, but Sasha Urich's, um the the soul of Erlang I think is the name of the talk where yeah. he does the demo of the uh, system and doing live upgrades and everything um, I replicated that at a lunch and learn at my previous employer and everyone thought it was amazing and none of us still wanted to you know actually introduce that into our tech stack I've been evangelizing it for a long time but uh, finally got the chance to use it here uh, here at Knock I will say on the topic of pronouncing Sasha's uh, surname. We had him on, I don't know if it was back in the lecture mix days or on Beam Radio, but he once helpfully included the uh, the pronunciation guide, you and Rich. 
It is Yitch. Okay. <laughs> you Rich. All right. You I can work with that. Yeah, you Rich. Uh, that's that was the pronunciation guide he he provided. So I assume it's correct enough that he will be satisfied. Okay. Uh, yeah. You Rich. I can. Uh, all right. You heard it. Heard it here on Beam Radio. <laughs> yeah. But yeah. So Sasha Yurich, um his uh, demonstration on beam concurrency and hot replacement of it's you know, demo. code and everything. Such a great presentation of kind of the just the the whole philosophy behind the platform. Um, anyway, it's it's a it's a really great demo. Uh, how long have you been at Knock now then? Because I don't know. Yeah, so Knock was founded in early 2021, and I've been here since um, basically the the summer of 2021. Um, so okay. it's been a little over two years. And I, I feel like uh, you know the Beam is a very good fit for what you guys are working on at Knock. Like uh, you know, when um, when Chris Bell was talking about, I think this was back when he was uh, doing Elixir Talk. I think he was like just starting to tease about the the business that he was starting towards the end of Elixir Talk. And it seemed like a really, really good fit to to lean on the beam for that kind of product. You guys want to dive into what you know what offerings uh, uh, Knock has and how you guys kind of lean on the beam for for all these cool uh, scalable notification systems? Yeah, um, I uh, I think that the you're right that the beam is excellent for running highly concurrent, distributed. Um, you know, parallel processing type activities. That's really what it was built for. And so there's, there's, I would say, um, three components to the way that we leverage the beam and just the architecture at NOC. Um, so from a 30,000 foot view, NOC is a notifications platform for companies that care about thoughtful notification experiences for their customers. We make it really easy for developers and product teams of all shapes and sizes to be able to develop workflows that are custom to what they need for their product, um, for sending messages to various channels with different rules, respecting user preferences and privacy, making sure that the right message gets to the right people at the right time and not too many um, is the way that I feel about the product that we're trying to build. We're not in the business of trying to overwhelm anyone with messages um, because we're, we all have notification fatigue. And to a, a large measure, I believe that um, at NOC, we believe that notifications are an important part of a thoughtful user experience in any product. And we try to make it easy for companies to have an excellent product notification experience without having to build it themselves. That's basically the product pitch. There's a lot of different pieces that go into that, integrations that we have with various messaging platforms, push notifications, and then other types of more back office things like integrating with Segment or Rudderstack to really power a comprehensive view of your user's notification experience. And so um, from the product perspective, that's what we do. From the perspective of how it actually works, we use Elixir with Phoenix and uh, Oban for job processing for a variety of things, Broadway, um, so many of the different things that you might hear about um, listening to podcasts or just perusing the community. Um, we leverage most of it in various ways to build the platform that runs uh, that runs Knock. On the, the front end of things, if you were to sign up for a Knock account today, you would be interacting with a uh, control product that's the dashboard, and that's its own Elixir project. And then it synchronizes with a, a data plane that um, is a separate uh, deployment altogether that's really the beating heart of the notifications and workflow platform. And that is where a lot of the high concurrency really starts to kick into to high gear. The dashboard piece of it um, in its back end, you know, I don't know that there's anything about the beam that's necessarily really, um, you know, 
giving us any extra edge there. Um, it's a pretty straightforward product for accepting the configuration of a workflow and credentials and making sure all that works. But then it synchronizes with the backend and that's where the backend is then able to kick into really doing the work that our customers set out to do with our platform, which is to, uh, you know, have lots of jobs running at the same time for there to be fault tolerance as things fail, if things aren't working, maybe, you know, um, maybe a downstream email or, or SMS provider is having a bad day and we have to retry and recover from errors that are in that scenario. Um, and then of course, making sure that the different pieces of the system are connected, but uh, decoupled enough so that if any one piece of the system is in a, a degraded fault state, that the rest of the system keeps on humming along smoothly. And I think that that's really the one piece that strikes me as being so ideal about working on a beam-based uh, platform is just that, that graceful degradation where it's not either all up or all down, but you're able to gracefully take different pieces of the system down and recover in the ways that you need to. And I think that that philosophy, you can apply that in other language ecosystems for sure, but it's just such a part of the DNA of supervision trees and the Beam platform that it makes it so that you think more about that um, and the different failure modes and how to recover from them when you're trying to, um, trying to build a product, whether that's NOC or anything else. So uh, yeah. Those three pieces, like I mentioned, is essentially that front end dashboard and configuration control plane. There's the uh, the back end workflow processing side of things that's really the, the heart of making everything work. And then there's an API surface that's there as well so that our customers are able to uh, trigger notifications, you know, provide information about email addresses or phone numbers that we ought to be aware of for those workflows um, and to perform all the other operations that you can with our API surface. And Meryl tells us you've recently made a, I don't know if I should call it a major change or just a, a major catching up in regards to to the infrastructure there. You said you were using Oban, so that means Postgres is involved. Uh, can you tell us more about what, you, what a recent maneuver you did and kind of how the Beam has fit into that uh, exciting adventure? <laughs> Yeah. Um, so like many Phoenix projects, we use Postgres. And um, I did mention Oban, which is an excellent product. Um, if you are not using Oban for background jobs, just going to put a shout out to the Soren2 team, uh, um, Parker and, and Shannon. They are excellent. Um, the product is excellent. And so if you're looking for background queuing, go take a look at Oban because it really is a great product. Um, but apart from that, the uh, Postgres underpinnings that we have for our platform we use Amazon Aurora, which is itself its own flavor of Postgres in a way. But uh, we were running on version 11.9 and um, community support for 11.9, it concluded a couple of weeks ago in the official Postgres ecosystem. And Amazon's um, support for version 11 of like the series 11 Postgres release is going to conclude in, uh, early next year um, in February. Um, and unless you uh, convince them to uh, sign a support contract for the next couple of years and pay them extra money, um, they're going to uh, be forcibly upgrading um, any Postgres clusters that are running 11.9. So if you are listening to this and you use Postgres uh, 11 on Amazon, uh, just uh, almost a PSA on that front that uh, they are going to upgrade your database. And they sent us some emails in advance of that many, many months ago. Um, and we were aware that you know you have to upgrade these different pieces of your system over time. Um, it's just part of, you know, maintaining and running these types of systems. The problem is, is that we believe that as a developer centric um, piece of notification infrastructure, like a core piece of infrastructure for the teams that rely on us at NOC, we want to make sure that our customers have continuity of service at all times. Downtime is not acceptable 
for most products and we didn't really want to have to take a major service window like a service outage window in order to upgrade the database because like many applications it's really difficult to just turn everything off just so that you can upgrade your database and so we started um, several months ago planning for a migration from 11.9 to what was then the most current available version on Amazon's Aurora product, which was 15.3. Um, and uh, that was the uh, jump that we made, was we actually made an in-place upgrade of Postgres from 11.9 to 15.3, and we sustained zero downtime as part of that. And part of that was um, thanks to the Beam, and part of it was thanks to Postgres. So yeah, that was the, the big jump that we made there. <laughs> I was going to say, from the Postgres side, I don't think... Like I think not, like nine point six I remember was uh like when it went from nine six to like ten was a was an era where there was a lot of changes with Postgres. But it seems like every major version since then has been a very like smooth sailing kind of upgrade, at least from my experience. I don't know if uh you know, maybe I just use like those surface level features which are all very rock solid and, and stable, but uh it seems like for a while now, uh, upgrading Postgres has been uh, has been a non issue. So it sounds like that is still very much the case, even if you're going from 11 to 15, which is good. Yeah, and I, I would agree with that generally. Um, I uh, I may misspeak here, but my impression is that in the jump from 11 to 15, um, there were certain uh, post-upgrade maintenance operations that would be required to, for example, re-index the database. And the, the general path, if you're gonna upgrade your database, the quote-unquote easy way would be to shut everything down and then run the typical upgrade scripts to say, hey, we're going to take the database and we're going to now move it up to the next major version. And along the way, you as a database administrator might be required to re-index -re your indexes or to maybe perform some vacuum operations in Postgres, which are typical maintenance operations for um, maintaining the health and data integrity of your platform, um, of your database platform. And um, which is great. And I, I think that Postgres is a phenomenally great piece of technology for those reasons, just how reliable and, and supporting it is. The real trick comes in when you maybe decide that a constraint is, is that you don't want to um, take a downtime in a window in order to perform those upgrades. Because even on the happiest path, if you have an empty Postgres database on Amazon um, and you go to upgrade it, you're going to be spending a few minutes with the database in a disabled state while it is performing the upgrade, copying in new binaries, maybe updating some system catalogs, and then bringing itself back online. And uh, that process, that outage window was in our tests, was going to take much longer than we wanted to. Um, even on the order of just a few minutes, felt like it was too long for what we wanted to do. And so we said, well, what are, what are some strategies for trying to do this in a way that would incur zero downtime? And the gist is, is that um, when you go to run a database cluster like on Amazon Aurora or really anywhere, um, generally you're going to have a follower, a primary, and you're gonna have replicas that follow behind the primary that are your read replicas. And oftentimes those read replicas can be a source of extra stability in your system where if the primary goes offline for some reason, data center loses power or whatever, then these uh, replicas can then be promoted to being the primary and they can take over the responsibility of accepting writes. Um, Amazon's Aurora product does a lot to make that a seamless feature of the platform. So they manage the promotion of replicas from being a secondary to being a primary instance in the Postgres cluster. And so we took inspiration from that and said, well, what, what if we were to spin up a primary, like a, a secondary that was running 15.3 we gave it the same schema, we gave it the same usernames, passwords, roles, made it so that it basically was the same sized database. Um, 
and then we set up replication from the old database to the new database and copied all of the data over from the old database into the new database and then um, at runtime we would then direct the system to cut over from the old database to the new database to uh, make sure that the system would um, yeah, just just to move over to this new version of Postgres and uh, and in a nutshell that's exactly what we did there are some interesting uh, edge cases that you run into along the way that require more careful planning and much of the several months that we put into this project of making sure that we were able to do this smoothly um, involved just going through a cycle of continually de-risking assumptions that we had or places we just didn't know um, starting by just reading, you know, reading the change log to see, well, what has changed? You know, what are things that we know we have in our system that we might end up feeling in one way or another? What are the, what's the query performance of some of these things? For instance, one of the things that was a concern to us in the change log is that along that upgrade path, I don't know which version it was, but one of these versions that we leapfrogged over and into 15.3 um, now uses, uh, it'll now trigger more vacuum operations on uh, database inserts. And um, for uh, listeners who haven't um, worked on Postgres with uh, vacuum operations, um, the gist is, is that Postgres, it uh, accumulates data um, with every transaction that um, eventually grows um, stale, essentially. So if you insert a record into the database and then you update it, internally, it actually has two copies of that row. There's the original inserted version and then there's the updated version. Um, it refers to each of those versions as a tuple and um or tuple i guess i'm not sure how they pronounce it in uh, postgres land but these uh these internal uh, tuples they accumulate and the vacuum process's job is to go and figure out which tuples are needed for the database to continue to operate and if there are any tuples that are now too old to be useful to the database it will then go and clean them up and remove them from disk and there's a lot of other details that go into that but the gist is is that it's just a housekeeping operation to make sure that the database doesn't continue to just chew up disk space and get slower and slower over time. We, we noticed that there were some changes in that behavior in that change log as we were going to upgrade. And so we said, well, we have a pretty write heavy database. You know, we have lots and lots of concurrent activity in some of these tables. Um, some of the tables are very, very large um, on the order of many tens or even hundreds of millions of rows and, and uh, you know, weighing in, I mean, the, just the amount of data that was going to be involved in trying to re-index and move the database if it was in place could have taken us several hours potentially of the database just upgrading system catalogs and re-indexing, um, which we didn't feel was going to be uh, acceptable for what we were going to do. And so, you know, moving over to 15.3, um, it gave us a chance to identify those risks, look in the change log, figure out which pieces of the, uh, the upgrade um, might make it, you know, could be... Uh, could require us to refactor how we use Postgres to make sure that we weren't going to run into any edges. Um, fortunately, we didn't find too much of that. We actually found that the jump from 11 to 15 was broadly, it uh, didn't introduce any negatives. And there are a lot of things that are uh, much more improved as well, which is good. But um, but yeah, so I think that there, um, you know, are there any specifics that we want to, to, uh, to jump in on kind of explaining how uh, some of this works or, or any of those bits? Because um, I know there's a lot of ground that we can cover here. Um, yeah, as as part of the knock team that was not part of the the upgrade team, I feel like from my perspective, there was a long period of time of like you're talking about de-risking and planning. And um, I'm interested on this side of it in how you identified pieces of the Elixir ecosystem that would make it 
useful for you to leverage in this upgrade path? If you did, like where you took inspiration from in terms of thinking through those places? Yeah, that's a great question, Meryl. Um, I think that the uh, the beam was very helpful in giving us the primitives that we needed to be able to run some of the different pieces of the migration that required um, certain amounts of concurrency, I guess. I think that most languages would be able to tolerate having two database adapters connected to two different databases at the same time and then swapping from one to the other. There are various patterns you can employ in different languages that can do that. And I think for much of the database work that we were doing in our system, that was more or less about the same as you might expect to do in another, in another language ecosystem. I think one of the things that we really benefited from is the fact that even though you have a, a very broadly concurrent system, when we uh, went to perform, well, stepping back just a little bit, we have the old database and the new database, and we've synchronized the old database to the new database. And a couple of weekends ago, we um, we had a, the, a, a, flat, a switch essentially that we flipped that told all of our running nodes to switch from the old database to the new database. And if you've ever worked with a read replica, you know that there can be a little bit of latency between the old and the new database or between a, a primary and a replica, um, I guess. And that that amount of latency um, can introduce some inconsistency between what you might see on the follower and what you might see on the, the leader in, in the cluster, right? So in the case of the beam, we knew that we could have a certain degree of confidence in trying to address that because we were able to introduce some artificial latency when we performed this cutover. And we were able to use um, a combination of persistent term, actually, which is a way of setting essentially a global flag in the beam's memory, where we said, okay, when we flip this switch, we're going to set a persistent term that says we are now in the middle of the cutover. Um, and that means that anyone that went to go to talk to the database was actually going to first, they were going to eventually be pointed at the new database, um, but they had to then wait a brief, it was, I can't remember, it was like 500 milliseconds or something, which was the threshold that we determined we could accept for replication lag. Um, it was much lower than that in practice. And then once that lag, uh, once that um, latency was passed, then the request could then continue pointing at the new database. What that gave us was the, and then once once the once we basically completed the cutover process, the second persistent term was set that said, okay, now just point everything directly at the database. Don't wait for anything. Um, those the persistent term piece and the fact that we knew that we were able to pause everything that was kind of serializing into this adapter is part of what I think made this work the way that it did. Another piece of it that ended up being more interesting from like a problem solving perspective was actually how we use uh, Oban. Part of Oban is a mechanism called the notifier, which is used to keep all of the different, um, if you have many copies of your application running, they all need to stay in sync about various aspects of Oban's performance and how it runs. And the notifier is the mechanism that they use to do that, to communicate with each other. I'm under the impression that for larger scale open deployments, using distributed Erlang has been um, preferred. There is a project that was recently published by uh, the open team that is about connecting open into the Phoenix pub sub mechanism so that you can use that, that same mechanism for communicating across these different, for open to be able to talk to itself essentially across different nodes. And we haven't, we're, we're planning on introducing that at some point, I think. Um, but we were using the default notifier mechanism um, because we don't use distributed Erlang at NOC at this time. 
in order to, uh, we were using the default mechanism, which actually requires a long running connection to Postgres, one that we can't really interrupt. And so we said, well, we need to have a way that we're able to essentially take the beating heart of our system, the Oban job processor that is that is a key piece of, of the puzzle of how we, we do all the work that we do it at NOC. And we need to be able to shut down Oban while we're running we need to be able, then be able to shunt over to this new database, and then we need to bring Oban back online, but have it reconnect to the new database. This long-running persistent connection that it uses for this critical function of Oban, it there's no there's no graceful way to just tell Oban to point to a new database at runtime um, when you're using the Postgres notifier. If we hadn't been using that notifier, then maybe we wouldn't have had to have done this. But we ended up using a combination of this. Um, this cutover mechanism that when we flip that switch to tell the system to move over to the new database and it started introducing that brief moment of artificial delays and things we actually uh also we had a, a dynamic supervisor that we booted up that was what was running the open piece of things and that made it possible for us to control when and how open connected to which database and so during this cutover process like when the application booted up before we we cut over open started up, it connected to the old database with this persistent connection. And then when we flipped the switch, we were able to use the dynamic supervisor to selectively remove Oban from the supervision tree. Meanwhile, requests for Oban were sitting behind that same delay that, that we had introduced. And so we had this window of time where Oban wasn't online. Oban activity from the rest of the system was actually like if we needed to insert jobs or do other Oban activity, we weren't doing any consumption off of the queues themselves, but there are other open activities that the system needed to be able to do. And we were able to buffer those internally using this, this essentially process.sleep mechanism while the system was able to point over to the new system and then bring open back online. And then we were able to then allow all that open traffic back through. And it didn't notice anything had changed because open was still there. Once the process.sleep was over, open was still, was now online again. Um, it was just booted up in a configuration where it was pointing at the new database. Those were the two biggest things that we ended up having to face in trying to piece this together. Um, a lot of it ended up being more of the Postgres internal side of things like, you know, migrating all of the tables and everything and making sure that everything was caught up to date and, and synchronized. That's an exciting switchover. Um, and it's kind of one of those things I really enjoy with the Beam is that all the parts of your system are kind of real in a in an unusual sense like if you're running well in a python project you would also be running a web server ish type of deal you would have a connection pool and and all of that and you can bring them up and bring them down but there is not this common abstraction that everything uses and yeah something i find i find fundamentally satisfying about a phoenix project is like hmm actually i want to run this without the database i'm going to need a database later but i don't need a database while i'm kind of building out the prototype or whatever okay common out the repo done i'm not I'm no longer running the database or i need another web server all right you can create a new endpoint that's not a problem just start another endpoint it's fine it's like there's something fundamentally uh, just manageable about the parts of your system on, under the beam. And it sounds like you, you use that to great effect here. <laughs> it's like open is a special beast. It does a lot of stuff. Um, and 
it's, it's quite an impressive beast, but I, I can see how it can be a challenge during a migration like this. Yeah, and I, I'd even say that the like the the encapsulation that the beam affords these you know child processes where we're able to just say this is open you know and if you want to talk to open it's over here like you can go find it in the supervision tree um that that before there's like there it, it kind of changes the way that you look at running code because you have the functions you know the, the functional part in functional programming of at least the, the flavor of elixir's functional programming where you have you know you know data goes in and data comes out and it's the same thing and then you have these units of concurrency and state management like open where it's interacting with the database it's got internal state it's managing it's got queues you know it's doing all this stuff and if i have some other part of the system that wants to do something with open it's going to go through these functional interfaces to talk to that that running concurrent program you know i, I mean we call them gen servers because it really is a server that's just running you know in this this virtual machine right um and so for me to take that down completely and to you know to do maintenance on it essentially to say hey we need to bring up a new copy of Obin that's pointing at the new database um, because we we actually um, maybe to to color this a little bit we uh, at first our strategy was going to be to say hey like we're going to run two copies of Obin one against the old one against the new because that's what we did with the repo we were able to spin up two copies of the switchboard repo um, of, that's the name of the product that we have that's running this we call it switchboard but this this uh, this ecto repo that we use to talk to um, the old database and the new database. Um, we had two copies of it running and it's pretty easy to just build a facade in front of it that says okay if you want to perform something against the repo we'll pick which one you talk to and then we'll just pe silently pass it through to that underlying adapter right um that's pretty straightforward most languages can do that you know it's a facade like that's that's not a big deal but but being able to stop and restart part of the application in this way in a way that's very controlled and very like it's very easy to reason about it's not it's not special in some way you know i mean it's special in the sense that we can do it on the platform but it's also very common because this is how you just run all the other slices of your application anyway um, whether it's a live view or the database you know or the job processor or you know a broadway yeah. pipeline right you're not having to reach out outside of your application to like kubernetes or to some supervision system like system d or supervisor um which is which is a python supervision thing um and tell it oh stop all the workers we're doing a thing <laughs> like, yep. no it's it's right here it's in your application and it works the same as everything else i think that's kind of the, the sleeper power of the beam for for like building modern applications because almost every other ecosystem has a wide variety of different abstractions that you end up integrating and like hoping that they gel in a nice way well like this is a fundamentally high level language you have high level abstractions they are already established you can just use them and you can be fairly confident that that when you shut down something's supervision tree there's really nothing left behind unless they did something very unusual. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's, and, and I think that, you know, to, to the credit of other language ecosystems, um, I know that Swift or Rust, for instance, they have their own actor implementations, um, but is it, uh, I don't want to, to misquote um, Joe Armstrong, um, but was it him that said that, you know, as you 
I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, essentially that if you keep on working on trying to build these types of concurrent systems, you're going to end up basically re-implementing Erlang. Um, uh, this is Robert Verding's first is it Robert law Verding? of programming. There we go. Yeah. yeah. Any sufficiently complicated concurrent program in another language contains an ad hoc, informally specified bug-ridden slow implementation of half of Erlang. <laughs> and it yeah. is decidedly a little bit arrogant but it's also very funny uh, yeah, the amount it's... of of projects that have tried to do erlang in another language uh, or do otp in another language like the the bodies of those projects are littered across the landscape well and, and i think i think that the the point that i want to make here is that because um, there are gonna be people listening to this that maybe don't use the beam ecosystem either because they can't or because they're <gasps> listening to this for some other reason you know maybe you came here for the postgres i don't know um and i i think it's important to note that many of these are things you could do on other platforms uh the advantage is that erlang and the beam ecosystem have what is it a almost 40 year head start um on trying to pioneer these types of techniques and that's you know like is is swift or rust or pick another language going to be able to implement some of this maybe you know some of these languages have idioms that would make it possible to do um i think that when i think about other concurrent systems you know c sharp um and the like the orleans project comes to mind um or scala with the aka framework um but the underlying like technology that powers those platforms is still beholden to say the JVM garbage collector. You know, you, you don't have the same primitive for process memory management and just the way that it interfaces with the underlying hardware that, that has been perfected in the Erlang environment. So if you're yeah. trying to solve these types of problems, you're going to have, you're, you're going to have a, a head start if you're picking something that's already been doing this for, for 40 years, even though you can do it in other languages, um, you know, there, there, there are other ways that you can approach it. Yeah, I had the question at some, one point, like, why wouldn't you just do this in Rust instead, of, like running threads, passing messages, whatever, or building a green thread implementation? Like, and I think the Tokyo, uh, the Tokyo async stuff under Rust can essentially do green threads and message passing and a bunch of that. The tricky part to me is that they are not fundamentally about this. They are not fundamentally designed uh, as languages or, and runtimes for doing this. So they don't have kind of the abstraction in place and they don't keep their shape. This is something that I sometimes find hard to express. But if you compile a Rust program, your concepts of what you wrote are gone. <laughs> It compiles to something much denser, uh, which is good for performance. But an Elixir and an Erlang project essentially keeps the shape of what you wrote, because partially because hot code updates kind of dictates that it has to. Uh, there are limitations to how much sort of the compiler can remove for you. But also, it has this system of like, oh, this is a process. We can introspect it. Oh, it's a gen server style process. Then we can do a ton of stuff with it uh, at runtime. And that's an important part. And if you build some OTP in Golang, I don't think you would get that unless you build the beam in Golang or Rust, which is a different matter than just implementing kind of OTP style abstractions. So in the end, did the Postgres stay up? 
Yeah, so in the end, um, we did not have any downtime. Um, we had a planned spike in latency because of that little artificial weight, like the little pause that we introduced that was meant to, to give us some breathing room for some of these things we needed to do. Um, but we, we had no downtime from the operation. And there, there are a lot more details. There's a blog post we're putting together that kind of goes into the nitty gritty of setting up publications and subscriptions and, you know, how might you migrate a one terabyte size table from, you know, one database to another without incurring a performance penalty, you know, just different, different pieces. Um, cause there's a lot of nuance to kind of the, the underlying Postgres piece of it. But in terms of the beam side of it, the work on that took only, you know, a couple of weeks of back and forth and, and backtracking a little bit. I'd mentioned that we were going to run two copies of Oban. We found that uh, that, that ran against some of how Oban is designed to function. You can run multiple copies of Oban. We did not design our system to do that. Um, and so we had to find a workaround, which is where we ended up leaning on the dynamic supervisor um, that gave us a path forward. But uh, yeah, the, the rest of the details were really in the uh, kind of the, the, the pieces that were more Postgres specific. And, uh, and there's a, a blog post that's going to go into more detail on that if there's anyone that wants to really, really go deep on subscriptions and, and migrating tables and stuff. Um, that's, that's, where, that's where most of the time was spent in this migration was just getting, getting to the state where we had a replica database that was a one-to-one -one match. And we were confident that it was a one-to-one -one match with what we had previously. It was just running on version 15. I think we're coming close to time, but I definitely want to sneak in a couple of observability questions. Uh, what kind of tools do you guys uh, use to monitor this, uh, you know, this kind of process, right? Because anytime there's a big, big event or migration happening, you know, I always picture, I always have my Grafana dashboards open. I have Sentry open, you know, I'm just making sure that everything is kind of all, the, everything's transpiring as I expect it to, to happen. So I'm, I'm guessing you guys probably have a whole suite of tools for, for, for monitoring your application and, and infrastructure. So maybe you can dive into that briefly, tell us what that looks like and, uh, what you guys were leaning on to make sure that things were going okay. Yeah, so we rely on CloudWatch metrics exported from Amazon for a lot of the data that we get about uh, RDS and the just the, the the running Postgres database running on Amazon. And we pipe all of that into Datadog. Shout out to uh, especially, I mean, everybody on the team at NOC really contributes to just about everything. We're a pretty small, tight-knit group that tries to get a lot done. But Billy, in particular, Billy Tuskovich, um, he uh, has put a lot of work into our Datadog and observability work. So big shout out to him as well. Um, if you ever wanted to talk to someone about the observability and like best practices around that, he's got a lot of in-the-trenches experience on, on making sure that that's a good experience, both from the collection of the information and making sure that the team is equipped to maintain and utilize that information. Um, but... Uh, we have um, our, uh, so there's that piece of it. And then we also have a lot of instrumentation that we pull from the beam itself that tells us information about, you know, API response times, all the stuff that you would expect, I guess, typically just coming out of the, the open telemetry integrations that are available throughout the ecosystem. Some of the stuff that we did that was unique to this particular migration was that we did have a set of scripts that we used for comparing database tables where it turns out that it is relatively difficult to verify that when you have, a, you know, let's say you have 100 million rows in a table and it's constantly being written and updated, how do you verify that those tables are identical? It's, a, it's an interesting problem to solve. And um, we'll have more details in the blog post about some of how we approach that. 
but um, we wrote, wrote some custom scripts to essentially count how many rows there were um, to verify just the overall table patterns. And so much of it ultimately came down to a, uh, a we just had to accept that we were at the mercy of Postgres's implementation of replication to be flawless, which I believe that it is. <laughs> um, at least it was in our case. We, we have not run into any issues whatsoever moving data from one box to another. And um, I think most teams really experience that as well if they're running a high availability Postgres cluster. You just don't think about it because it's excellent and you know proven technology. We also keep track of queue depth and open to know, you know, how much stuff is waiting around, how much stuff is, uh, you know, how many failures have we experienced across each of our queues. We collect all that information from the open uh, met um, uh, module that's uh, available in open. Um, yeah, uh, we had some separate scripts that we were running that were uh, comparing the Postgres replication lag. So we were able to observe how far, do, uh, how much data is there um, waiting on the primary, like on the on the old database that still needs to be flushed to the new database. Um, and we tried to keep that. I think the threshold we set for um, a warning was that that needed to be under two megabytes. Two megabytes is um, both a lot of bytes and at the same time, it's, you know, machines are pretty fast these days for being able to flush a million, two million bytes uh, across the wire and to get them written to disk. So we tried to keep things pretty tight that way. But yeah, I mean, there there's a lot more detail we could go into there, but those are the highlights of what we were keeping an eye on for, for most of it to make sure that it went off uh, smoothly. Well, congratulations, Brent. Um, and congratulations to Knock. I'm glad that we did this well. and. Um, yeah, I think we're probably going to wrap here. I know that there's a lot more we can talk about, but hopefully we'll be able to include the blog post in the show notes if we get that out um, around the same time that this is going to go out. Um, and I just wanted to see if there's anything that you wanted to talk about or plug before we wrap up here, Brent. Oh, goodness. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think the last thing I'd leave on is that um, I like the Elixir community for the just how welcoming a uh, place it is it feels like we have a really great community um i i hope that i'm not um speaking out of turn on that front if there's someone that's having a poor experience i wouldn't want that to be the case but um at the same time i uh i don't know just like be kind to each other and that's that's my shout out is just like let's keep building a, a good community with that works for everybody and that, that makes it a great platform and a great place to work that's, that's a, a lovely plug. note to end <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, Lars, Alex, anything that you want to add before we wrap up here? Definitely, uh, definitely echo what you said there, Brent. Let's keep making it awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Lars and Alex. And thank you so much, Brent, for coming on and talking to us about this and looking forward to the blog post about it. See you all next time.